Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, so where do we want to start with this? Um... Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind. Uh, Jane is, I believe, on a train back from Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm looking forward to asking her if she went to Bueno Isano. And, uh, you know, if not, um, please keep emailing me your thoughts, Western Massachusetts burrito fans. But uh, there's a lot of Mueller news stuff happening, but we're policy people. Um, Slash, this is one of those days where... If we recorded a podcast about what's happening in the Mueller investigation, it would probably be outdated by the time it hit your Right. Uh, Who knows? We could have seven crazy tweets at any moment. So when last we podcasted about the caravan, the caravan was quite distant from the U.S. border and appeared to have been interjected into the discourse primarily for electioneering purposes. Since that time, the election has happened. Caravan talk quieted down quite substantially. And now is sort of back at a at a lower ebb. The caravan is less present in the media today than it was six weeks ago. But it is objectively much more relevant to like U.S. policymaking yes. and for that matter, like U.S. regional relations. Yes, but now things are actually happening right. that are worth paying attention to for non-political reasons. I was seeing on television this morning, there's like appears to be a large tent city in Tijuana, which is right by the U.S.-Mexico border. And we've seen— Right, which is in fact why why there is a tent city there, because it is of people who have arrived at the border and who are right. now waiting to be so, allowed to enter so, the U.S. So, yeah, so what what is happening? I mean, I guess we have, we have not seen the, like, promised, you know, vast military engagement as— um, our brave troops battle the caravan. But the people have have gotten to the border. They are asking to be let in, and they are not being let in, I gather. Right, right. So so to do a kind of when last we left the caravan, like the estimates of how long it was going to take the caravan to get to the U.S. border before the election were based on the fact that they were going very, very slowly through southern Mexico because they were mostly walking. There were efforts by Mexican police to kind of 
not physically pull them off, uh, as far as I know at least, but to interdict any flatbed trucks that were taking people through. They couldn't successfully get buses to take them through. So they were moving relatively slowly. Once they got to Mexico City, however, they waited in Mexico City for several days and then dispersed in waves, but many of them were able to use flatbed trucks and buses. So the first wave of caravan members, about 100 LGBT caravan members who had kind of gotten, you know, a certain amount of special protections because they were particularly concerned about their treatment on the road, got into Tijuana about two weeks ago. So I guess the weekend after the election. Oh, no, I guess a little bit before that, because the first serious wave of caravan folks got to Tijuana about two weeks ago. At that point, Many caravan members do not appear to have understood that they were not going to immediately just be granted asylum into the U.S. There are stories coming out in the Mexican press that the caravan organizers have not been super forthright with people about this, that they are kind of using them as political pawns. One Mexican human rights lawyer says that he and his people offered transportation to caravan members but were telling them, like, it's not a great time to go to the U.S.-Mexico border. Things are pretty tense there. You're not going to get in immediately. And were then frozen out by caravan organizers and prevented from talking to any of the other travelers. But Upon getting to Tijuana, they realized that the wait to get legally through the port of entry at San Ysidro was, even before the thousands of caravan members started showing up, about two months. There were already thousands of people in San Ysidro. A lot of the shelters were already close to full by the time that caravan members started getting in. So they were waiting for a couple of weeks in a converted sports complex that was turned into a temporary shelter. Uh, That got flooded a couple of days ago. It was not a great scene. The government of Tijuana has now opened another facility that's a further drive. It's about a 25-minute drive from the U.S.-Mexico border, but it is apparently a more solid place to hold several thousand people than the sports complex was. But they're in a holding pattern. And so last Sunday, some of the caravan members organized a march to go physically right up to the U.S.-Mexico border and to demand asylum or to meet with a representative of the Trump administration, both of which were asked that were just not going to get granted. And what ended up coming out of that are the images that you've probably seen of people attempting to cross into the U.S., of U.S. Border Patrol agents responding with tear gas and projectiles. It is pretty well established that some rocks were thrown. It is not super well established what exactly the circumstances were in which anyone was firing tear gas. Obviously, the tear gas ended up affecting a lot of people, including women and children who weren't necessarily rushing the border. That tension wasn't just the product of, oh, the caravan is coming and the U.S. is amassing to stop it. It was the product of a group of people who have been exhausted, who have been walking for ages, who, you know, finally got to what they thought was their destination, were then told that they were going to be in a holding pattern for several months and had no idea what was next for them and were reacting in frustration by holding this march. I mean, to to set the stage, you know, of some of this, in case people don't, I feel like the geography of the U.S.-Mexico border is often not that well explained sure. in these stories. Um, sure. But, you know, so so T- Tijuana is a 
pretty big city in in northwestern Mexico, right up against against the border. Right. And like it, Tijuana and San Diego are kind of a twin city. In a yeah, it, it essentially abuts the suburbs of San Diego. Like you can take the San Diego light rail basically to I have done that. I did that last station. night. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I mean, relatedly in terms of some of the broader politics in the United States, right? Like this is California, right? So this is the the liberal part of the border zone. This is where you will have politicians who would never dream of giving a dime to Donald Trump for his border wall. Um, and it is also where you have a giant border wall. Yes. Um, and have had one for a very, very, very right. long time. Oh, I was going to reference the the famous lost episode, the Texas uh, yes. Tribune. So, okay, I, I guess we actually have to explain this because I don't think that we've – we may not have gotten into this in a podcast that wasn't taped at the Texas Tribune Festival and then lost to the sands of time. But the very first kind of border wall-ish things were built in San Diego, Tijuana because it's a lot harder in urban areas to catch someone after they've crossed the border. It, it's much easier for them to like hide in houses or dash down side streets or that kind of thing. The places where it's basically wilderness, it's much easier to spot and apprehend somebody after they've crossed. So I mean there's like a there's like a big outlet mall, like yeah, right on the US side of the border, and there's a parking lot abutting the mall and then a wall. Right. Like you and literally because, like, can't the, see you can see like the billboards on the other side right. of the border. You cannot really see across because it's just this big built up thing. But it's because you have a Latin American city on one side of the wall and you have an American well-developed suburb on the other side of the wall. And so if people came through, there's no like desert that you can track them across. Like there's no place, right, exactly. there's no place where you would catch them in the right. U.S. And interior. And there are lots and lots of, of places where they could duck into or like basements where they could hide if they needed to. And you'd so, have to be rifling through Americans' homes exactly. and businesses constantly to find them. So this like long before like the wall was a psychographic construct in American politics, um, the, it was the Clinton administration era, right? Yeah, the, I, yeah, it might even have been early enough that it was – HW, but definitely Clinton was kind of the bulk of that. It was some of the very first border barriers were requisitioned landing mats from Vietnam. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but what they have now, at least what, what I saw, I mean, it adheres pretty closely to the Trumpian concept of a big, beautiful concrete wall. Yeah, it, it definitely looks like it's a big freaking barrier. But in the middle of that barrier is the kind of big, beautiful door. The San Ysidro right. Port of Entry is by far the busiest port of entry in the U.S. They just opened a big, fancy new facility. They were – when I toured there last month, they were so pleased that after all the construction, they finally had all their lanes of pedestrian and vehicle traffic open again so that they could facilitate legal entries back and forth. Right. A and huge then of course, amount like, of legitimate tourism and commerce right. comes here, again, precisely because there's so – it's so built up on both sides of the border. There are a lot of Americans who live right by the border. There are a lot of Mexicans who live right by the border. There are lots of people who like, you know, the with all the disruptions this week, the University of California, San Diego had to put out a statement saying, if you're a binational student who goes here but lives in Tijuana, like, we understand it's going to be hard for you to get to class right now. Right. So, I mean, so the, the dual features of this class are like, one, like the border is very fortified here. Right. Yes. Like there's a huge wall. There's a big port of entry. There's lots of people at the port of entry. They are more than capable of like repelling this kind of assault. At the same time, it's like 
this is an important part of the binational economy over there, right? So like having it shut down, it's a different situation, I guess, from the like big open sandy Texas border zone where there is no wall now. There's talk of doing it. Also like deploying 8 billion troops to make sure nobody can cross there sort of doesn't change anything. I mean it does for for, for the troops and stuff. But this is like a big regular like functioning part. Right. And this is a really important thing to understand that like Donald Trump tweets very frequently about, oh, we might have to shut down the border. We will not hesitate to shut down the border. It's like Donald Trump is – He's probably not the only person in the administration who may kind of want that to happen or certainly doesn't appear to see it as a worst-case scenario. But pretty much everybody on the ground around San Diego, Tijuana, does not believe that shutting down the port of entry to legitimate traffic on both sides is a good idea. Like the amount of lost business that you deal with when you shut down a port of entry that big or even, you know, cause hours long wait times is massive. And that means you get business mad at you. That means you get, you know, the community on both sides mad at you. It's just not a great situation. That said, a lot of People in the Trump administration got very rattled by the footage of caravan members entering Mexico from Guatemala. And there was a concern that there was going to be kind of that like mass push to just swarm the port of entry and try to just get through by having masses of people there. So they are a little bit more willing to shut down lanes of traffic. You know, there were a lot of training exercises in both San Ysidro and El Paso uh, in the run-up to the caravan showing up. And on Sunday, when the march was happening, they did, based on the perception that there might be an attempt to rush a one of the vehicle lanes, like there's this massive multi-lane highway just going through into the port of entry where people, you know, are processed through. They shut down the port entirely on both sides for several hours, which there are pictures of just like this multi-lane highway and it's like a tumbleweed going across there because it's just this massive infrastructure that isn't being used. Mexican federal police were extremely involved in this. The tear gas, the use of tear gas created some takes about, oh, it's banned for international use, which it is. That's true. And this was an attack from the U.S. on Mexican soil, which they do appear to have launched tear gas canisters that went pretty far into the Mexican side. Therefore, this is a U.S. attack on Mexico. It's certainly not something that the Mexican government is going to be taking to an international court of law anytime soon. We'll put it that way, because this really was both the U.S. and Mexico as governments working together to prevent a group of people from crossing from one country into the other. Wait, but so at the, the same time— The, the Mexican like, authorities are yeah. trying to keep the border open. They don't want the American authorities to feel that they are about to be overwhelmed by people rushing the border and therefore it all needs to go get shut down, right? Like right. They're, yeah. they're trying to cooperate on like keeping the caravan people corralled— Waiting in the sort of metaphorical line. Yeah, I mean, the role of the Mexican government here is a complicated one. It's one we're going to get into a little bit more later in the episode. But it is generally safe to say that the Mexican government does not feel any particular responsibility for 
you know, it's not taking a human rights approach to this, sure. right? Like they're not going, it is our job to make sure that the rights of caravan members are protected. They are not Mexican nationals. There are lots of local government actors who are very freaked out about the prospect of having to take care of thousands of people. The mayor of Tijuana has kind of, you know, used this as a platform to do some engage in some Trumpian populism and to complain that he needs more money from the Mexican national government in order to take care of these thousands right, of people. Right. It's fair to say right now what we're dealing with is the efforts of governments to enforce a border between right. them and the efforts of migrants to cross from one to the other. So that's kind of where how we got to what happened on Sunday. Sunday, of course, at this point is like was several days ago. We haven't had the same kind of tensions at, you know, in the area that we had on Sunday. That's not to say that they won't erupt in the future because, again, there are still thousands of people waiting. What we have seen in the last few days is the opening of this new, you know, less temporary facility. There have been concerns about shelters just being totally tapped out of money. There are these ongoing conditions concerns that are going to continue to affect these people as long as there are thousands of people waiting on that side of the border. Okay, let's take a break and then let's talk about the backstory to Asylum at the Ports of Entry. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. 
what is evidently not happening here. I mean, this is U.S.-Mexico border. You are allowed to cross from Mexico into the United States, right? Like it's yes. not it's not a crime to do that. You know, you need a legitimate purpose and, and things like that. But one way this could go is that you show up, you caravaned, you made your whole way to Tijuana. There's this, you know – great big door and the big beautiful wall. You show up, uh, step across the border, and the authorities say, "Uh, where's your visa? And they're like, oh, I don't have a visa, but I need asylum in the United States. And then they take you off to the asylum room and, you know, sort it out there. Obviously, if you have thousands of people in a tent city and possibly the construction of a permanent encampment, that is not what's going on. And so... Why? And again, right? I mean, there's before been... the, the caravan folks showed up, like there has been a big increase in the number of asylum seekers coming through, you know, from Central America through Mexico into the U.S. But like this section of the podcast, if you've read my piece from Wednesday on asylum at ports of entry, is probably going to be moderately redundant. But well, if you haven't, haven't yes, I mean, cause, no, cause if you haven't, there's a, there's a chart in there that shows that like the asylum seeker flow, or at least the best proxy for it that we can that we have, which is families coming through between ports of entry, people like crossing the border illegally and getting apprehended by border patrol, since spring of this year is just like risen dramatically. It's this big scoopy rise. The number of families coming in without papers at ports of entry has been flat and even gone down a little bit. That's not because fewer people are trying to come in. It's because the U.S. government is only allowing at major ports at Tijuana, at El Paso, in Nogales, in Arizona, along some of the major ports in the Rio Grande Valley, has restricted the number of people who can enter in on any given day. They've they've been at what's called the limit line, like physically on the U.S.-Mexico border and prevented people from step from setting foot on U.S. soil because that would trigger a statutory obligation by the U.S. government to offer them asylum. And when someone has tried to come up to the border, the people at the border have said, we don't have room for you right now. Try to come back later. That has been the case consistently in Tijuana off and on, frankly, since 2016, but extremely consistently and rigidly over the last six months. It's been the case in El Paso pretty consistently over the last six months. And generally, this policy of metering has gone from being, you know, only do it under unusual circumstances to something that's pretty consistently in effect across the border. Right. I mean, this is important because I think like the legality is – matter to a lot of people. You know, if you see like, okay, this family, it's been arrested. They're being prosecuted with illegal entry. They're being separated from their children. And someone is like, oh, that's so sad. Like, how could you do that? Something people will say is like, well, you shouldn't break the law. Like, you know, I mean, criminals are separated from their children all the time when they're caught and prosecuted and and jailed. And this has been literally the Trump administration's argument has been there is a legal way to seek asylum. You go to a port of entry and you ask them if people only did that, we wouldn't have to do all these other things. And, and, and the same thing, if if tear gas is shot into a crowd and it hits women and children and blah, 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 and you're like, this is so sad, it's inhumane, people are going to say, well, look, like, there were these other guys, like, pushing, possibly throwing rocks, you know, like, what are you going to do, right? It's like the Border Patrol needs to defend itself against people breaking the law, which, you know, I mean, all fair enough as far as it goes, as far as I'm concerned. But then it's like, well, because you have a legal right to make a claim to asylum when you are on U.S. soil and there's no like rule against 
coming to the legal ports of entry. People come to legal ports of entry all the time. That's what they're there for. So you now have the Border Patrol acting as just kind of physical repellents because they don't want to deal with the asylum claims, right? Well, and that's the – Their argument is that it's not that they do not want to deal with. It's that they do not have the kind of – physical capacity or human resources to process right. it. But the, but the political context here is not that they are putting this metering policy in place while the Trump administration desperately scrambles to get a supplemental appropriation right. so they can address this, right? That it's like the law says that people can set foot on U.S. soil and apply for asylum. But the governing political authorities in the United States – wish that that were not the case. And so they are shaping the logistical situation to minimize the ability of people to actually do that because, I mean, they keep using the word loophole, right? Because like their view basically is that this is a – maybe was fine to have this rule on the books for decades when not that many people were – trying to use it in practice, but that if you are going to have thousands of people caravanning up from Central America routinely, that like we cannot use the sort of on-paper process where you show up, you show up at the legal port of entry, you get your hearing date, you go yeah. sort of do what you want for a while, that that is too much of a of a magnet for all kinds of people to just show up. Right. Like at a policy level, the problem that the Trump administration is trying to solve is that there is a large population of people who pass their preliminary screening interviews for asylum and who ultimately do not get their asylum claims approved. They want to minimize that population, like ideally to drop it down to to zero, and they certainly want to minimize the amount of that population who aren't being physically held in custody by the U.S. government between the time that they pass their screening interview and the time that their ultimate asylum claim is denied because that creates a situation where the U.S. government has to track somebody down in order to apprehend and deport them because, like, after you have your asylum claim denied, you don't have status in the U.S., but if the U.S. government doesn't have you physically in custody, you can have gone theoretically wherever. But also from from a, you know, I mean, from an even broader perspective than that, right? I mean, people could come in this winter, you know, pass their preliminary screenings, be waiting for hearings, you know, go do whatever for the next two years, and then the Kamala Harris administration gives them all temporary protected status. I mean, that is theoretically a thing that could exist. Well, no, look, sure I mean, a thing a thing the Trump administration has really done, right, was like take a harder look at these like long-lingering populations yeah, no. of Haitians and Central Americans that both the Bush and Obama administrations had sort of routinely been like, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Keep staying, right? I mean, so yeah. So, I mean, to, to the give... Obama administration saw this as a problem too. And as a matter of fact, if you look at kind of people coming in from Central America, there is a big drop in early 2016 because the Obama administration did some pretty small scale but high profile raids to apprehend people who had come in from Central America in the last couple of years and then missed their court hearings, right. and that sent the message that like that there was going to be a crackdown and so there was a temporary dip in people coming. But so because that's the problem that the Trump administration is trying to solve, they are less amenable to a solution that is going to let people through 
more efficiently and not necessarily distinguish between what they consider worthy and unworthy asylum seekers. The problem that that creates, and I think it's really important to understand this in the context of what happens Sunday, because at the same time in the reaction to Sunday on the left has been like the, these were asylum seekers, they were women and children, they weren't people throwing rocks, how dare you, you know, try to characterize these as threats. And on the right has been, well, if they were legitimate asylum seekers, why were they throwing rocks? Why were they storming the border? Blah, 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 blah. The problem is that when you hold a lot of people who are trying to present asylum claims in Tijuana and they are massing to march or trying to cross on mass, like some of those people may have more legitimate asylum claims than others. Some of those people may be more aggressive than others. It's not incompatible to say that there may have been people in that group who may have been willing to try to overwhelm and storm border agents and that many of the people in that group were asylum-seeking families. When you have large groups of people, it's harder to distinguish between the two. So the problem of what's called mixed flows is a big, big problem in current global migration patterns because being smuggled doesn't mean you're not a legitimate humanitarian asylum seeker. You don't necessarily, you know, it's not like the Mexican government has been giving everybody a pass if they say they want to seek asylum in the U.S. But when you're being smuggled or trafficked, it's not like smugglers are asking, oh, okay, do you have a legitimate asylum claim? So it's a hard question to deal with, but it's certainly not something that is getting solved by we're going to hold everybody on one side in Tijuana. Right. And so the result is an ongoing pressure cooker type situation where I guess the Trump administration's hope is that people will stop coming. Right. You can give various interpretations as to, like, why it is that people have come. I think we've seen some evidence of, like, misinformation. It's not exactly clear, like, where the misinformation has come from, but that some potentially large share of the caravan goers had a mistaken impression of the odds that they were going to be allowed to settle in the United States. And potentially— through various dynamics, right, but like having an ongoing saga about how people are being kept in frustrating, dire conditions, encampment outside Tijuana, occasionally tear-gassed when they make more aggressive efforts to cross the border, could like get back to Honduras and maybe people will like give up on this. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's worth distinct – like – The kind of misinformation thing does make the caravan somewhat unusual. Generally, people are making decisions based on what they've heard from people they know who have gone. Uh, And generally, those assessments are pretty correct. Like when the Trump administration came into office, there was this huge dip in families and children in particular coming to the U.S. because there was concern that you know, this very tough-talking administration was going to crack down. And when it became clear that despite the administration's rhetoric, in the first few months of the administration, they weren't doing anything that was stopping asylum seekers from being able to enter and plead their cases because 
it was fairly well enshrined statutorily in law, those numbers started creeping back up again. It's not that the Trump administration started saying, oh, it turns out we're okay with asylum seekers. You know, it's not like Donald Trump stopped saying that they shouldn't come, but people understood the actual situation on the ground rather than hearing what Trump was saying. So you can absolutely see the converse of that with like, there have been stories of people, you know, giving up and going back, uh, turning themselves into the Mexican government to get returned. In theory, that could result in fewer people coming. But it's also true that this has now become a politicized issue in Honduras, in particular, where it's being used by both the governing party and the opposition party as a proxy for support for the current government, uh, which is closely aligned with the U.S. and very much anti-caravan. It's in Guatemala, where there's been serious drought issues and a lot of people have just lost their livelihoods, it's not like there's a great alternative there. So, yeah, it's possible. But generally, as impossibly difficult as the journey through Mexico and dangerous as the journey through Mexico has been, people have been making the decision that the chance of ultimate legal status in the U.S. is worth taking that risk. And so, What's really hard to assess is whether the people who are going to decide not to come are going to be the people who have what would be legitimate asylum claims or not. Like that's the fear of any deterrent policy is that you're going to end up deterring people who ought to legally by rights get humanitarian protections in the U.S. And they're just going to be so – desperate but unwilling to kind of risk what could be very dangerous for them on the way that they're not even going to try. Right. And so with that, I think, you know, in terms of where Trump is trying to take this, I think we should talk about this deal that may or may not exist with the government that may or may not be taking office at some point in Mexico. The government is definitely taking office. (laughs) Unless you know something I don't. We'll take a break first. It's been a long time. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So on Saturday, the new president of Mexico will be inaugurated, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO. And with that, in theory, you know, the Trump administration has a challenge and opportunity to deal with a relationship that a lot of people in the Trump administration think is very important and Donald Trump seems to run very hot and cold on, I think Mm -hmm. is a fair way to put it, that 
after Trump's inauguration, he has occasionally done the same kind of macho, we're going to make Mexico pay for the wall. But he's also occasionally made it clear that he likes Mexico's efforts a lot to stop Central Americans from coming in. Right. And so they're getting a new – they've had this incredibly long lame duck period in Mexico. It's which is really, yeah. Crazy. is apparently an outgrowth – so Mexico has presidents serve for a single six-year fixed term and for the longest time was like a sham democracy in which all the presidents were from the same party. So apparently this extended lame duck period arose during that like perfect dictatorship era when it sort of didn't matter. Now they have partisan competition. So the incoming president is from a different political party than the outgoing president, they presumably have policy disagreements on a variety of fronts. And so you have these weird things like it's important they're signing the um, NAFTA 2.0 deal today, Friday, because the president who negotiated that deal will not be president anymore finally tomorrow and they need to get it done. Uh, so AMLO is a, is a, is a leftist, um, sort of the, the main leader of the contemporary uh, Mexican left for – 15 years at least, if not more than that. And so when its face would sort of herald a more confrontational stance with the United States, Latin American left, often less friendly to American governments in general, particularly to right-wing American governments, which themselves are very hostile to the Latin American left. There was this huge pre-election push from Trump administration to, I guess I would say, try to save some House seats in South Florida. But, you know, They did this big speech about Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and the whole deal. One of the narratives that the Trump administration was pushing about the caravan when it first left Honduras was that it was funded by Venezuela because this is what the right-wing government of Honduras was saying. Right, yes. And and I I just think this is important because in in the U.S., you know, there's a kind of – racialization of Latin America as a whole and a sense that like, well, Trump is just kind of waging like a racist campaign against Latin American immigration and then maybe an expectation of solidarity from south of the border. But Latin America has its own like deeply contested politics and the government in Honduras sees the existence of the caravan as a left-wing plot in the context of Latin American politics, not, not U.S. politics. But anyway, AMLO's government leaked uh, last week. Actually, they had a deal with the Trump administration that sounded like great for Donald Trump. Like like Donald Trump was achieving like big goals here without seemingly having made major concessions. Right. So the the chronology of this, which was extremely – Not something that anyone else was noticing because all of y'all were having a nice four-day weekend, whereas I was spending my Thanksgiving frantically texting people trying to figure out whether I was going to not be able to cook Thanksgiving dinner for my family. But on Wednesday night last week, the Washington Post published a story saying that there were – that the U.S. was looking to implement this thing whereby they would have people do their screening interviews – at the port of entry, and then force them to go back to Mexico to wait while their asylum applications were being processed. So like the months or years that it takes instead of having them in the U.S. and either having to pay for them to be in detention or releasing them and, you know, worrying about whether they were going to show up or abscond or just fall off the map or whatever, they would essentially be getting held in, presumably held in refugee camps or just or just left to kind of survive on their own devices in Mexico. On Saturday, the Washington Post ran a piece in which 
the incoming interior minister for the AMLO government said, quote, for now we have agreed to this remain in Mexico deal and confirmed that, you know, the U.S. and the incoming Mexican government had been negotiating it and that they had, you know, that a lot of details still had to be worked out, but that they had agreed to it in principle. After that article came out, the office of said incoming interior minister put out a statement. It was quoted as kind of denying the Post story. What it actually said is, there's no deal because we're not even coming into office until next week. And we have no intention of becoming a safe third country, which is a reference to a different kind of agreement wherein the U.S. would have been able to just reject any asylum application from anyone who traveled through Mexico. So the statement denied something that the Post didn't say and also said, well, there's no deal because we're not in office yet, which makes sense from a one government at a time standpoint, right? Like it's not a good idea to make it obvious that you are negotiating an international agreement when you're not actually the official government of Mexico yet. Since that story last week, though, there have been lots of indications that this is something that the U.S. and the AMLO administration are working pretty aggressively on. Mike Pence is going to go down and meet with the AMLO government next weekend. Mike Pompeo has been in really high-level talks. It does appear to be the case. And meanwhile, within the Trump administration, I keep hearing stuff that indicates that they're trying to lay the groundwork down to get this in place as soon as possible. So, so draw a d- distinction. So, so safe third country would be to say, look, if you're fleeing persecution in Guatemala or whatever, then you went to Mexico. Right. Then you went from Mexico to the United States. You are no longer fleeing Guatemala. Right. This you is, were already out of Guatemala. So get out of here, This is what here, the U.S. Man. and Canada have, right? Like right. there's – for all of the kind of – stories in 2017 about people like immigrants fleeing the U.S. for Canada because they were worried about the Trump administration, the U.S. and Canada have agreed that unless you're literally fleeing the persecution of the U.S. government, there's not any particularly good reason why you wouldn't just seek asylum in the U.S. or seek asylum in Canada if that's the first place you so, go. So in particular, you can't get on a boat in Haiti land in the United States and then try to traverse up to Quebec, which in some ways might be a better place for a French-speaking person to live, and then say to the Quebec authorities, oh, I need asylum because by the time you get to Quebec, you're already in the United States and it's an American problem. The Canadians wash their hands of you and you can't get to Canada from anywhere because it's – fucking north of everything. Right. Of Um, course, you know, the the idea of a safe third country agreement is that it is safe. And lots of places in Mexico, including many places along the U.S.-Mexico border, are not safe. You know, the the fact that the caravan went all the way out to San Ysidro when it would have been several hundred miles shorter for them to go to the Rio Grande Valley is largely the result of Tamaulipas being – a state that is basically controlled by the Gulf Cartel along large parts of it. And the risks that you carry for being an asylum seeker who's not willing to kind of pay or can't pay the relevant bribes or who, you know, is just disrupting their efforts to control various roads and bridges, it's not not a great risk. It's not a risk that you necessarily want to take. But but in international political terms – the reason Mexico doesn't want to make an agreement like this is that they don't want this hot potato to be their problem, right? I mean, it, it's not fundamentally 
on an intergovernmental oh, issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, like, the Mexican actual government safety is not like, we're are not, not safe. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's just, but that said, like, they are kind of, this is, you know, this is what you were saying about this deal looking really good for Donald Trump, right? Right. Like, but so, but so the, I mean, the stay in Mexico deal is different from safe third country yes. in that theoretically the idea here is that your asylum claim, you're petitioning the American government for asylum and the American government is assessing that claim without prejudice. Right. But while you wait for the resolution of the claim, instead of being either in an American jail where activists will complain about you or loose in the American interior where ICE has to track you somehow, you are going to be in Mexico. Right. Waiting. Exactly. So that is So it a, is kind of – it's not – in a legal governmental framework, Mexico's problem, but it is in the kind of basic how do you feed and care for these people, a Mexican problem. Right. But I mean also it's – I would say from the Trump administration's perspective, it threads the needle very nicely here because like claims that get approved will still get approved, right? Like you're not saying that you're refusing to hear people's petitions. You're not saying that right. like Mexico is amazing and people should live there in safety. You are saying that like look, like people – from Guatemala can petition for asylum. If the claims are legitimate, they will be granted asylum and they will get it. But meanwhile, you are not going to have X thousand people in the kind of asylum limbo right. kicking it's, around. It solves They're going the to be problem kicking around. They want to solve very elegantly. Right, exactly. They are going to be kicking around in Mexico. And what was striking to me about this is that because it, because the press report came from the Mexican side, it's the kind of thing where I would have expected them to be talking about the amazing thing they got from Trump in exchange for agreeing to this. Because it's, it's not like a crazy thing to agree to. Like it really clearly does solve something that the president of the United States has identified as like his personal number yes. one grievance with America. Right. So, so it just does, you would think it's and, like so. So what? And especially because. The AMLO government, just like the current Mexican government, is does not appear to be approaching this from the perspective of the human rights of the migrants are the most important thing. It's very easy to imagine that AMLO, who has not been as consistent or as vocal on issues of like civil or cultural issues as he has on economic issues, could see this as a way to like get some – political capital with the Trump Right. But so I was waiting for his like here's our trillion oh. dollar something. Yeah, no, they're asking they're asking for 20 billion dollars for southern Mexico. Right. But they're but like, asking they for it? it. Right. That's this is, you know, I do not have man, if you are involved in US Mexico deliberations, it is very easy to contact me securely. You can see my uh, secure mail drop on my Twitter bio, but without having anybody who is in that room the press reports sure make it sound like they have tentatively agreed to the remain in Mexico side and are still asking for the $20 billion for southern Mexico, which bear in mind, this isn't $20 billion to care for the migrants. No, no, right? no, no, no. It's we want you to help us develop the less economically developed part of our country. Uh, you know, the AMLO government like talks about like a Marshall Plan kind of thing right. um, where the U.S. is going to be giving large amounts of aid to – Mexico in order for Mexico to take in temporarily the residents of these other less developed countries to Mexico's south. Right. And I mean, 
It's why the leak struck me as odd. Yes. Right? Just because yeah. I've been asking people about Elmo's tenure as mayor of Mexico City. And, you know, the thing that everybody seems to say is that, like, he's a very sincere Mexican leftist politician, but also a very pragmatic person, a, a, a person who um, – cuts deals, like not in the Donald Trump sense, but in the like normal politics sense. Like he has his goal that he's always driving at, but he does not expect like the full AMLO vision to come like next week. Mm -hmm. So he's doing things. And so they talk about, you know, how when he was mayor of Mexico City, he led this huge revitalization of the central city and is basically the reason why Mexico City has become a big tourist destination in the way that Cancun and other places had, had long been. Now, lots of people visit Mexico City and that a ton of the money for this was put up by Carlos Slim ultimately, you know, not like a, a long-term ideological ally of his but a businessman who could reap benefit from this thing that he wanted to do and he needed money for and – he worked with the central government that was run by conservatives at the time that he brought in Rudy Giuliani to be like his security consultant while this was happening. Not because they really wanted Rudy Giuliani's advice to the Mexico City police but because they like wanted to make Americans feel like something was happening that was making Mexico City safe. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to invest in building hotels and come visit and that like – you know, I, I think it's like not a crazy idea, right? Like what what do white people in America think will make a city safe? Rudy Giuliani, right? And so like that's what you do, right? He wasn't like really hung up on the peculiarities of it. Right. And, and so and, it wasn't – it wasn't an ideological thing for him either way, right? It was something he was perfectly willing to do to get to what he actually wanted. And so that very much suggests that if – he can get some giant check to deliver development assistance to southern Mexico that like, yeah, like he would do a lot right. to get a giant check of money, right? That like every Mexican politician like promises that they will do something with the systematic underdevelopment of southern Mexico and like they don't know – like they don't have any real ideas for how to do this. Like a shit ton of American money, like that that would help. Right? right. And so if you can get that by, you know, instead of Mexico paying for a border wall, um, like Mexico <laughs> puts people in a tent city indefinitely and the United States pays for an unrelated economic development project, like great. Right. Of course, the questions are – there are lots of questions about this on the U.S. side, one of which is that Donald Trump has been extremely consistent in attacking existing aid going to Mexico and Central America as – way to address the root causes of migration. You know, in Trump world, foreign aid is basically bribes to governments to do what we, what we want them to do. And if they don't do what we want them to do, we shouldn't give them any of the money, uh, which actually kind of dovetails with the left-wing critique of the U.S.'s approach to trying to solve the root causes of right. migration by helping give money to the governments that in many cases people are fleeing. But we would not only be seeing a flip from Mexico is going to pay from the, for the wall to we're going to pay Mexico $20 billion. We'd be seeing a flip from we're going to cut off 
foreign aid to Northern Triangle countries for not stopping people from leaving to we are going to engage in a massive, massive, bigger aid package to Mexico for the purpose of Mexico temporarily holding people, not even stopping them from coming into the U.S. ultimately if they do get their asylum claims approved. So it's not clear that Donald Trump personally is going to be a huge fan of this. It's not clear. I mean, $20 billion, as much flexibility as the State Department often has with foreign aid stuff, $20 billion is probably not something they can find between couch cushions. So what a Democratic House is going to do with that is an open question. And it's also not clear that this policy will pass legal muster once it's inevitably challenged in the Ninth Circuit, because the legal provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act that the Trump administration is probably going to be using for this, it's not really clear whether it applies to asylum seekers. There's like, it's this weird three-part legal problem that I've talked to several lawyers about, and people are reading the grammar of it in different ways. And there are really big questions about, okay, if you're doing this kind of quick processing for screening interviews and then sending people back to Mexico, how are they supposed to get access to legal services? They're supposed to be able to have access to them. They're not guaranteed a right to representation. But, like, you can't create a situation where they don't have an attorney and are just getting sent through the process and don't have the ability to get one. There are, of course, human rights concerns about the conditions in Mexico and whether that's actually going to be a safe place for people. It's not super clear that this is not going to go the exact same way that every other Trump asylum attempt has gone and get put on hold by a Ninth Circuit judge and then be on this very slow litigation timeline as it goes up to the Supreme Court. So what that would create is a world where the U.S. is giving a lot of money to Mexico and can't even get what it wants out of its side of the deal. Yeah. On the other hand, to be like a little bit more optimistic about this, I do find that a lot of people approach politics in a somewhat irrational, like clean hands framework. And so while pictures of asylum seekers being detained in inhumane conditions in the United States by the American government would really agitate them, that like if they're being detained in Mexico, people aren't really going to care. Yes, I and think that's absolutely And, and there's plausible. some real precedent from Europe, right? I mean, they, they would not put it this way because European leaders are not nearly as crass as Donald Trump, but they are essentially paying governments in northern Africa to and Turkey. to turn away yes. asylum seekers. And they are, again, because they are not as crass as Donald Trump, like what they are pretending is going on is that they are providing financial assistance to countries that are coping with migrant flows and that this is like development aid to these northern countries. But like really what's going on is that like they know the governments in question are very corrupt, have terrible human rights records, have very weak rule of law, systems like that. And they are not saying, here, take this money as a bribe, but they're not really interested in, like, what is the money being used for. It's just, it's a deal, right? Like, they do not want an infinite quantity of refugees washing up on the shores of Spain and Italy and creating a domestic European problem. They don't want to formally shut Europe's doors to asylum seekers, but they don't want asylum seekers showing up in Europe. So they are going to get Mali or whomever else to shut the doors. And Trump in some ways, because he's less invested in pretending that this isn't what he's asking for, 
I think, you know, you, you can imagine a world in which he's much more successful. Well, yes, you can generally imagine a world in which Donald Trump is much more successful. And get it. No, but I mean, just like in this this particular thing, right, it, it seems to me that like this is something that Western governments are often trying to do, but that they are a little bit held back by their own bad conscience about it. And that like because Trump is like so willing to say that like, yes, like just like what he wants is for there to not be Central American asylum seekers physically present in the United States and that like he doesn't care about any right. other aspect of this, that like now the other governments can just like, you know, AMLO or whomever else, but I mean he's the, the responsible person, can just like name their price and see what they can get. Yes. I mean I do think that – the pattern of Donald Trump does a thing, the courts either say it's okay or say it's not okay and Congress makes some noises is not as sensitive to domestic politics. It's not totally unsensitive, but like the legal challenges, you know, the asylum ban that they tried in early November didn't get a ton of outrage and still got struck down in pretty right. short order by the Ninth Circuit. Like, that's still going to be a risk, even if it's not getting a lot of domestic outrage. Well, I think the bigger political question, right, is like, it would be, at this point, clearly challenging for Senate Democrats to give in on the $5 billion wall appropriation request, even if they in some sense wanted to. Right. right. That like they are now feeling increasing pressure from the base that like they have given way too much on this. Right? right. And so a big question is like, look, if Trump asks not for $5 billion for a wall, but for $20 billion to who knows what, right? But like to get AMLO to build the wall, like does that become a source of outraging grievance, right, that this is like wall squared or does it become – Look, Donald Trump finally, like, did something, right? And, like, yes. we should give development aid to Latin America. And, like, this is a pragmatic resolution of the asylum problem. And, you know, we are now not going to have children separated from their parents in the American prison system. And, like, this is good, right? Right. And, like, I just – I don't know, right? Like, because because this whole thing happened over Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Like, people right. – and, and because nobody, it's now kind of – like, the micro-timing of the next couple of weeks matters a lot because we're – now about a week from a shutdown deadline, and that's also the first week of the AMLO administration. So the timing of whether they manage to, like, you know, ink a deal Tuesday versus next Tuesday right. is really, really important. Right. And so I just don't have, you know, this has struck me as, like, not on the radar of people. Uh, yes. Capitol Hill Democrats right now, right? They have been uh, consumed with the House leadership elections and with various people uh, yelling at Chuck Schumer about various things. Um, Li Zhao has a good good article about that. But it's like, I mean, I don't know. You know, like I, I, I was, I was, I was reading this this Post report over, and I was like, okay, like. This kind of seems like Trump is, like, getting what he wants, but, like, can he spin it as a victory, right? Like, a more normal president who had more political capital, I think, like, definitely could, right? Like, sell this as, like, an elegant resolution to what's bothering, like, most Americans about what's going on here. And, like, human rights activists can go complain, as they tend to, and it, and it wouldn't be a big deal. But, like, Trump has a way of – making everything very contentious. And in a scenario where your party doesn't control Congress, like that's not a great way to get anything done. Yeah. 
that sounds that sounds correct. It's really, you know, who knows how this is going to shake out over the next week plus. You know, obviously there are also lots of other considerations when it comes to wall funding versus security funding and the question of whether Democrats try to ask for something in return on immigration and, you know, especially in terms of you know, legalization of DACA recipients. As usual in our current moment, we are very close to a shutdown deadline with very little appearing to happen in terms of negotiation. So we can't really shed a lot of light on that because there's not a lot of light to be shed. But this is kind of the dark horse, you know, consideration as we hurdle toward a shutdown and people try to make a deal. And so with that, I think we should wrap this up. Uh, we will revisit probably some of these topics as we know more about the state of uh, the appropriations battles uh, on Capitol Hill. You know, we'll have to see if Amla, does he really make this deal or not. But it's a big issue and I think has not, people have not really focused on the most yes. significant aspects of it as opposed to uh, the most telegenic ones. So uh, thanks, Dara. Thanks to uh, Jane's empty chair uh, and the, the good people at Bueno Isano. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Griffin Tanner. The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.